emergency medicine extracts with Sanjay and Mike. Welcome, welcome. Happy New Year. Yeah. Because this should be coming out right in the beginning of January, mid-January, correct? Yeah. Those of you who are listening, and this is probably, maybe this will go to a broader audience. I'm not sure if this is like the, if maybe you're an MRAP person, kind of new to EMA. Maybe you listen to EMA every month. Maybe someone forwarded you this in your spam yeah. email. Maybe you're just catching up. You're like, up. what is this garbage? Whoever you are, you're all kind of in the same boat. Because you're hearing something that's sort of new. Right. And it is... The best of EMA 2022 edition. This is something we have not done before. Yeah, we've talked about doing this a few different years. And, you know, because over the course of the year, we cover like 250, 300 papers, something like that. And we've always kind of had in our head a highlight reel. And I think we, we go to conferences and yeah. we lecture on the highlight reel. And we always were like, we should lay it down to some audience. Yeah, why, don't, why are the people who have us in their conference rooms privy to this genius content yeah. while our regular listeners are not? Yeah, and maybe- Seems unfair. This might even drive a new regular listener. They might be like, hey, I had no idea that EMA right. was so awesome. Yeah, but that's, that's double-edged too, because it could also be turning away somebody- who was on the fence and they're like, yeah, I think I'm going to go start listening. And then, oh no, no, pass, hard pass. So yeah. we don't know which way it's going to go, but we'll follow the data because that's always, what we do. We've always liked the idea, I think, of doing a best of. It does kind of remind me as I'm just sitting here, just sort of, as you know, just starting this recording, I'm thinking about how, remember in the old sitcom days? Oh, we're back to sitcoms. Cool. Yeah, why not? <laughs> they used to do, it wasn't quite a best of, but it was kind of like the reminiscing episode. You know, like compilation. Yeah, a little yes. bit of doodle loo, the compilation. Yeah. They do like a save by the bell. Hey, remember the time we did yeah. the car wash mm -hmm. and the yeah. doo -doo -doo, and they like kind of show it? Yeah. They don't do that anymore in shows. It's very rare. It's very rare. I can't recall seeing that in a long time. And I have been watching a lot of TV shows lately. You know, part of the reason probably is back when those shows were on, there was no interweb. There was no way to go look at sort of your yeah. favorite moments from the, the YouTube. past. The, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. right now, just, I was, I'll, you can YouTube any like two-second clip. You're like, ah, remember that episode 1992 when Chandler says to Monica, that's right. what's the deal with what? Yeah, yeah. You, can, you can have that in 20 seconds by via YouTube. But you're right. They, they can't do that anymore. So Mike and I are bringing it back. That's right. Best of 2022. Here we go. So, yeah, what we're going to do is, I mean, it, was, it was difficult, but we sort of picked our top 10 each. Yep. So there's 20 papers total. Yep. We're going to do sort of a really brief, uh, I think, look at each one of them, maybe chit chat a little bit, maybe kind of let it sit as is. I think this is just sort of give everybody a flavor of the kind of stuff we covered in 2022, hitting yeah. the highlights. Yeah, I think a little bit of it will be also telling people why it's a highlight for us. Some of them are self-evident, they're like a big, a big trial or whatever. And some of them are more, are different. And, you know, maybe it'll give you some insight into the way we select papers overall, et cetera. And one thing I should add is that this is not meant to replace the full segments that we recorded before, right? So we're not going to go into the, the same level of depth or anything like that, because those can be like, you know, eight minutes long and really get into the, the methodology in, in, in some detail. This is more meant to sort of give a flavor of, you know, what 2022 was like. And if you're interested, we'll have links to the actual audio and the abstracts in the show notes. The first paper on my end is PCARN for Minor Head Trauma, Risk Stratification Estimates, 
So this was actually a really nicely done sort of external validation of the PCARN rule from Australia and New Zealand with 15,000 kids, where they just sort of solidified the numbers that they saw in PCARN, reminding us that generally speaking, if you follow the rule set and you put them in a risk stratification group, kids who come out to be high risk have like a 5-8% chance of a bleed. Those are intermediate, have like a point something, 0.2.3 chance of bleed. And those who end up being essentially very low risk really have no chance of a bleed. So this was a well-done external validation that I think gave us good numbers to hold on to when we're talking to patients and doing that shared decision-making with parents about what to do with this kid who bonked their heads gave us some nice numbers to then present to the parents. Yeah. And I think for me, you know, it's, a, it's a, always a nice reminder of like, what are the rules? What are the basic criteria? And you can go to MD Calc and plug them in. That's easy enough to do. But, you know, I think they really boil down to if the GCS is normal and the kid is behaving normally, then they're at most intermediate risk. Isn't that correct? Yeah. I think that's a good way of thinking about yeah. it. And then, so if they're at most intermediate risk, then PCARN generally says, don't scan them, at most observe them for some period of time. All right, well, the first abstract I selected was called traumatic arthropathy, arthro- arthropathies. No, not traumatic arthropathies, traumatic arthropathies. You know, in fairness, that is a tough word. And I, as you go through the year, it does seem like Mike always gets the tough word titles. <laughs> I don't know what, why that is. But. It's because you get to select the, the topics first. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> Do they all need the operating room? That's actually part of the title. And this is in the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma. This is a really, you know, in my mind, a really interesting and kind of provocative prospective evaluation of nearly 200 people that have traumatic open large joints. So they got something, they were usually it was some kind of accident, a you know, motorcycle accident or something like that, where their joint was actually ripped open. And instead of the historical treatment, which is to take them all to the operating room, it was left at the discretion of the treating physician whether to take them to the operating room for a washout and closure and whatnot, or to just do you know antibiotics, bedside washout, etc. And what's fascinating about this paper is that the septic arthritis rate was almost nil in the group that didn't go to the OR. It was one person out of like 60 or 70 that had a septic arthritis compared to almost 10% who did go to the OR. The study's limited significantly because the ones, it wasn't a randomized trial. The ones went to the OR, they tended to be bigger and uh, more contaminated and such. But it at least starts to set up the possibility that maybe this isn't nuts, that somebody has a little rent in their knee. You know, maybe they don't need to go to the OR, have this big operation. Yeah, I think it's, you know, this is one of my favorite papers of the year too. Just question the thing we've been taught our entire lives. Every open joint needs to go to the OR. I think we've all thought it was silly, like looking at like, you know, even little holes in the knee and stuff. This has to go to the OR now. And these authors are kind of saying, maybe that's not true. Yeah. And for me, I'm not sure if I'd go so far as to say it's a practice changer because again, it's, you know, it's not because it's not, it's not, it shouldn't be, but it does where I really feel the impact is on these little wounds. Someone scrapes their knee real bad, you know, not, you know, you know, some little thing, but they scrape it real bad. And you're like, could it have gotten into the knee? Is that possible? And you do whatever tests you like to do, whether you do a saline load test or whether you don't, or you just explore it really carefully. And at the end of it, you're like, is it conceivable that there's a little tiny boo-boo in there that got all the way through the joint? This to me says that it's probably not going to be a problem anyway. And if you really don't think it's there to begin with, I don't think you have to go through all this rigmarole to get ortho consults, et cetera. 
again, it really shouldn't be practice changing, but it really starts to set up equipoise around that question. The next abstract is years and age-adjusted D-dimer for ED patients with suspected PE from JAMA. This one, you know, all these papers in this sort of series are great. You know, we overutilize D-dimer, we over-CT everybody, and this is another one of those papers kind of saying, well, how can we take some of those gray area, marginally positive D-dimers and make them negative? So this is a cluster randomized crossover non-inferiority trial, a big one that basically just sort of set up a new an intervention arm where they said, okay, you can't perk this patient out. They're not that low of risk. Let's start with the years criteria. Let's start with the years. And if there's sort of, you know, no, 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 then we'll use a D-dimer cut point of 1,000. And if you answer yes to one of those questions, then we'll add in another kind of a backstop layer of using age-adjusted D-dimer to determine who needs imaging. Right. So they don't default to the 500 level. That's exactly right. So it's just one more step to try to catch some of those gray areas. And essentially, they found a 10% absolute reduction in CT scanning using this algorithm with no missed PEs. So I think this is great. I think this can be practice changing. I love it. I love all these rules that take those gray area D-dimers and say, maybe we can just not scan them. All right. The next abstract I have comes from February, and it's antibiotics and septic olecranon bursitis without bursal aspiration. And this one was in academic emergency medicine. And this one's another really great study, not a trial again. This one's a retrospective look from a single center at a few hundred people who came in with olecranon bursitis, about 200 of which had suspected septic olecranon bursitis. And it challenges this question of like, what are you supposed to do here with septic olecranon bursitis? Or at least when you think it is, should you be tapping those olecranon bursa to get the fluid, figure out what exactly it is, et cetera? The orthopedists, their literature says, don't tap septic olecranon bursitis because they're at risk for developing these fistulous tracts. But the ID folks say, you got to get source control. Yeah. So how do you how do you resolve that? And maybe even a culture. Or right. Yeah. Well, like yeah, that. you got yeah, you got to drain out the pus and then get a culture and put them on the right antibiotics. Anyway, this retrospective review with really 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 good methodology says that over 90% of patients with septic olecranon bursitis healed up fine with antibiotics alone. Very 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 few of them ever got any kind of drainage or open procedure, even if they were admitted, even the ones that were admitted to the hospital with like, you know, fever, septic bursitis, cellulitis, they just got antibiotics and they got better without needing drainage. So I think, you know, while again, not a massive practice changer, this really affirms this notion that the large majority of patients with septic olecranon bursitis do not need a drainage. And we should probably just avoid it, at least in the ED so that we don't run this risk of fistulous transformation. Orthopedic physician, one, ID doc, zero. The next abstract is the VIPER study, videographic assessment of intubations in a PEDS ED. They have an acronym that makes sense, which is the main reason it was on the best of list. No, that's not <laughs> exactly true. You know, pediatric airways are very stressful. VL is making its way into basically every intubation we ever do, for better or for worse. And what the authors did here basically was just an observational study from four EDs at places where all these resuscitations were actually video recorded. So they could take a look at patients who got VL versus those who got DL and compare first pass success rate 
At the end of the day, they didn't find any difference. They found them to be basically the same. The overall first pass success rate was two thirds, regardless of which device it's you actually- use kind of high. I mean, usually when we hear about these PEDS studies, first pass success rate can be even lower than that sometimes, right? More like 50%. So. Yeah. Th- I think this one included kids that were a little bit older, but it does sort of reaffirm that, you know, the feeling of stress is worth having because yeah. this isn't the same as doing an adult intubation. So it is very difficult. And I think the message that VL didn't crush DL in this study is a really good one. It's a practical one mm. because I think if you feel like well, I don't have a pediatric VL in my ED. Perhaps I'm practicing below the standard of practice. You are not. Right. This is a pretty well done study that says they both look about the same. I think there's going to be some subtle cases where one works better than another. But if you're good at DL, even though this is not a trial, I think this is probably good data affirming that practice. All right. My next abstract is small percutaneous catheter versus large open chest tube for hemothorax. And this is in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. You know, this is the question, it's an age-old question, does size matter, right? In this case, for chest tubes and, and hemothorax. And the traditional teaching is that you need the big tube to drain out the blood and all that stuff. But these authors start their paper, and I love it. They say, hey, listen, if there's no blood clots, you can drain this stuff out of an IV catheter tube. You certainly right? put it in through an IV right, catheter. Right, exactly. No so. problem. So there's no blood clots. You can do it that way. And if there is a blood clot, it's not coming out of a garden hose. It doesn't matter. So that sets up this whole trend towards smaller and smaller chest tubes for hemothorax. And this is actually a randomized controlled trial done at multiple centers, surgical centers, for people with large hemothoraces, traumatic hemothoraces, where they randomized them to a fairly large bore chest tube, 32 French or bigger, or a pigtail catheter for drainage of hemothorax. And they had some complex methodology issues, but the main endpoint was how often the initial strategy failed. And the failure rate was the same between the two. It was like a 10% in each. So the pigtail catheter worked. And this is actually the first trial that's been on the heels of a variety of observational studies. So this one might end up being a practice changer, but there's a couple caveats that I think we should know. And the first one is, uh, probably the biggest one is, though I said it was a multi-centered study, most of the data came from one center. So, and there's a trauma center. And so that center probably had a lot of experience in dealing with these kinds of things. And we're very comfortable sort of waiting for the fluid to come out, maybe being patient, maybe it takes a little bit longer, et cetera. And that might not translate. The overall point of it is that the chest tube, the big chest tube, as opposed to the pigtail, hurts a lot more, Right. And so it's really important that before you go and say, you know, I'm going to do this for all my hemothoraces, that you've discussed this with the team that's going to take care of it. Because if they look at that and they're like, that pigtail, I'm going to replace it with a big chest tube as soon as they get up to the ICU or the floor anyway, then you haven't really helped any problems, right? So, you know, this is one of those ones that it could be practice changing, but it has to be practice changing sort of as a team. Yeah, I think that the reason I really like this paper is because I'm sort of picturing somebody working in the community. Maybe you haven't done a lot of large bore chest tubes recently, but you have been doing a lot of Heimlich's sure. for spontaneous pneumothoraces. So know that that's not like a waste of time to put in a Heimlich in somebody. You can say, hey, there is actually a trial that says it's just as good as that big garden hose. It's something I already know how to do. So I think it informs practice maybe in that way. That's great. The next abstract is 
VL screen visualization and tracheal intubation performance. This is from the illustrious Annals of Emergency Medicine. This is another VL paper. And this one I really like because it just sort of asks this question, what is VL exactly, right? It's sort of like there's VL, then there's VL, but there's also VL. So, you know, what am I even saying What the here? hell are you talking about? Yeah, what I'm talking about is- so You're basically they, saying is you like this paper because it has the definition of VL for you. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's actually saying there is no definition of VL, which is why I kind of like it. So what they did was they videotaped all these patients who got a video laryngoscopy done for their intubation, and they just sort of looked at the practitioner in terms of how they did it. You know, were you actually looking at the screen? Were you actually looking in the mouth? Were you kind of going back and forth? And then how did that impact your performance at getting the tube, right? And they sort of found, generally speaking, that if your eyes are like darting back and forth between looking in the mouth, looking at the screen, looking in the mouth, looking at the screen, you're in trouble, you know? Now, this was not a trial, so maybe that's why they were darting back and forth, but I think it's actually really cool because it sort of sets up this idea that not all VL is the same, and maybe there is a best practice for how we are supposed to do VL, not just to use the actual machine, but maybe there's a place you're supposed to look one time, then look over to confirm the tube placement. So I think it kind of made me question how I even think about doing a VL. And I thought it was really a thought provoking. Yeah, you're right. I mean, because I think that's right. I think that VL is a piece of equipment, but it's also a process, right? So the the piece of equipment, you know, whether it's a CMAC or whatever, GlideScope, whatever, that's your equipment. But how you interact with that equipment, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about. And so I, I agree with you. I think this is very interesting. And what does seem to come out of this is that if you don't have a plan and you're just sort of like, I'm just going to see whatever I see and look around and go back and forth with the monitor as quickly as I can, that's probably not a good strategy. Again, like you said, it's not an RCT. What came through to me is you should have a plan. If you're going to go in with VL, it's going to be like, I'm going to look with my eyeballs if you're using CMAC or something and only look to the screen if I can't see what I'm going to see. And then if I can't, then I'm going to look at the screen until I can see, and then I'll go back and re-verify or something like that. Again, it's not prescriptive here, but it really highlighted that notion of have a plan of how you're going to use this equipment in the process. Yeah, and I think, I think that's all well said, but the bigger thing is have a plan, but know that that plan might actually not be the right way. That's That's, fair. that's what it opens up the whole sure. door on, is maybe sure. the way you're doing it is wrong. Maybe you're not supposed to do it that way. So. I think we're going to see some more papers on this, and I think this is going to sort of be the paper that launches all of them. What's the best practice for doing VL? All right. My next abstract is anterior lateral versus anterior posterior position for AFib cardioversion. And this is in circulation, and this is a trial, nice big trial of patients that were getting electively cardioverted for AFib. So not apples to apples for what we do in the emergency room, but informative nonetheless. And the the basic idea is that, you know, there's some studies a long time ago that said, you know, AP, AL, the AP is probably a little bit better, but maybe AL, maybe it's equivalent. But that was all done in old school monophasic, you know, defibrillators. And now that we use biphasic defibrillators, maybe that doesn't, you know, hold true or there's some differences and they give some complex electrophysiologic reasons why the, you know, the physiology of the defibrillator might make a difference in terms of delivering the electricity to the heart. Anyway, bottom line, anterolateral was clearly superior 
to anterior posterior positioning of the pads, whether that was for conversion with one shock or ultimately conversion with up to four shocks. So that's some interesting food for thought. Now, you know, again, these are elective cases. We don't really know if it directly translates. But to me, this is saying, you know, maybe we start there. Obviously, you know, if you're in an emergent situation, it's not working. I would flip to the, you know, the, the other side, the AP side, but that's uh, what this is showing. There's one other really important thing, I think, on this one, and that's that regardless of which you, sh- you start with, AL or anterolateral or anterior posterior, the successful conversion rate on the first shock was about 50%. So, I mean, I don't do a lot of cardioversion for AFib. Sometimes it's pretty rare. It has to be a pretty unstable patient for me. Maybe some of you are more in the Canadian model where you're doing it more routinely, but it's worth remembering that it's likely to not work on that first shot. So anticipate that. Don't freak out about it. It's another reason why these patients have to be properly sedated because you may have to deliver several shocks and even change pad positioning. And there is so much interest in this topic. And from an emergency medicine perspective, certainly a lot more interest, I think, is around the refractory V-fib patient and what you're supposed to do with those pads. Are you supposed to put another set anterolateral? Are you supposed to now do a vector change to an AP if your first three shocks don't work? So there's a lot of papers looking at this topic right now. We've covered a couple in 2023. Already. Wow, look at us. My next abstract is the PREPARE2 trial, and you should prepare to change your practice. Boom! I love this trial. Yeah, this is peri-intubation fluid bolus for critically ill patients from JAMA. So this is a multi-center, unblinded, pragmatic trial in ICU, so it wasn't in the ED, And basically, they're just saying, hey, usually when we intubate these patients, it's kind of standard practice to be giving fluid along with them before you intubate because, you know, whatever the meds you give are going to drop their blood pressure. As soon as the tone goes away, they're going to get all hypotensive. So we usually run fluids or give a bolus. And these authors are kind of saying, is that right, actually? So they do this trial where they either gave patients a 500cc bolus of isotonic fluid or no bolus, peri-intubation and then just looked at cardiovascular collapse, which is a bit of a composite outcome. And when they looked, they found it to be the same, right. whether you got the bolus or not. Now, I think it was a really well-done trial. It's in the ICU. You have to keep that in mind. But the more important thing to keep in mind is that they excluded all the patients who really were unstable or kind of had the potential of going south pretty closely as well. So you can't apply these findings to hypotensive crashing patients, anything like that, for your run-of-the-mill intubation, you're like, I need to take this airway for whatever reason, you don't need to freak out because there's no fluids running because it's probably not going to do anything. Next abstract is recurrent VTE and bleeding with apixaban versus rivaroxaban. And this one's in the Annals of Internal Medicine. And this one we selected, or I, I guess I selected it, because we've had like eight papers this year that have suddenly been paying attention to this notion of, is there a difference between apixaban and rivaroxaban? Yeah, which is something that I had, other than the sort of name, right. I, I figured they were exactly the same medication. Whichever so, one's on your formulary, that's, that's you the do. one you use. Yeah. Now, well, could turned, there be a right or wrong one? Is like the CVS yeah. ibuprofen better than yeah. the, you know, the, the Costco ibuprofen? They're the same, yeah, right? That's right. But, but, they're, but they're not. Well, that doesn't look like they are. So, this is, like I said, one of a series of papers that have come out using real-world data in patients with a variety of indications 
for one of these drugs, whether in this particular case, it was for people with VTE. They were been diagnosed with VTE and they were given one of these two drugs. The data comes from one of these insurance registry things. So again, not a trial, but they matched the various different people on a propensity score. And then they matched one-to-one patients that got apixaban versus those that got rivaroxaban. And they found that the incidence of recurrent VTE was much lower in the ones that got apixaban versus those that got rivaroxaban. But what's more is they found that the bleeding risk was also much lower in the people that got apixaban versus rivaroxaban. Because I easily could have seen a scenario where it's like, okay, well, apixaban is really just high-dose rivaroxaban or vice versa, right? So one results in fewer VTEs, but the trade-off is you get more bleeding, you know? But that's not what happened. Apixaban did well in both categories. And that was true in all the other studies we reviewed and all of the other studies that exist out there. There are no trials comparing them head to head yet. They've only had trials comparing them to warfarin or something, you know, individually to warfarin in the past. So this really sets up the possibility that apixaban is a superior drug to rivaroxaban. There is a trial that's enrolling patients right now. We won't have those results for a couple of years. This is pretty compelling evidence. Yeah, and it's shocking to me that, like Mike said, there were like you know half a dozen papers yep. showing the same thing this year. And despite the fact that I'm the only one who can see Mike right now and see his Apixaban t-shirt and his Apixaban <laughs> baseball cap. And my Apixaban car. I think that there's actually some truth to what he's saying here. The next abstract, phenobarbital versus benzodiazepines for alcohol withdrawal. And this is from the journal Alcohol, appropriately titled for this paper. And like Mike was saying in the intro, you know, one of the things we sort of wanted to explain while we did this best of is why we chose the different papers. This one, these authors deserve pretty huge kudos because they are working in an 11-bed ED in Saskatchewan with 27,000 annual visits, and they actually put together a really nice paper here comparing these two medications. So benzodiazepines, you know, It's because there's so few patients. They got lots of time to do studies, right, Dr. Pistore? That could be it. I'm not sure. But usually when we think alcohol withdrawal treatment, we think benzodiazepines. Recently, phenobarbital is kind of entering the mainstream as a potential treatment that we could use. There's not a lot of papers actually comparing the two, but this is one of them. They kind of built these two protocols and let doctors follow whichever protocol they want, and they just looked at data, so it wasn't a randomized control trial. But After looking at everything, they found that the ED length of stay was about the same, regardless of which treatment you use, but that patients who were treated with a phenobarb were about 70% less likely to be admitted to the hospital. Now, again, it's a very small study, small and only like 20-some-odd patients were admitted, but I think this paper is, it shows what you can do if you really want to do research, no matter where you work, and also, I think it is a nice reminder that phenobarbital is a viable option for the treatment of alcohol withdrawal. Yeah. And I just add that I think we had, maybe not this year, maybe it was last year, but another paper on phenobarbital that looked at bounce back rates for patients who had been treated for alcohol withdrawal with phenobarbital versus benzodiazepines and who are subsequently discharged, showing that, you know, phenobarb had a lower bounce back rate. And again, not a trial kind of scenario, but I think I like it because it reminds us that phenobarb can be used for patients who ultimately are outpatients, right? I think a lot of folks sort of 
at this stage of the game still think of phenobarb if they think of it at all as people who are like they're like going to the going ICU. And dying in the ICU. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And no, you can use it up front and if they're fine, you can send, send them, them home, home yeah, on it. And we really do it nice, all the time. That's a really nice yeah. clinical take home point. This one's called Intensity of Cardiac Test Referral Doesn't Improve Cardiac Outcomes. And this one was in academic emergency medicine. And for the record, Sanjay, you'll appreciate this. This is the famous Tertile paper. It is? <laughs> it is. We've got, we got more feedback from our editing crew and quality control crew about how ridiculous Mike sounds saying the word turtile than perhaps anything else we've done the entire year. Yeah, well, you mentioned earlier that like I get these hard words. They wrote turtile. What am I supposed to you're say? You're supposed to change it to third. That's what you're supposed to do. This is you're the editor of this program. Yeah, well, thank you, Dr. Mark, for having turtiles in there because and I was trying to think through, like, why does it sound so... Because it sort of sounds like turd, right? I mean, that's what the problem is, right? That, well, that's one of the problems. <laughs> anyway, this is a great study. It's out of Kaiser in, um, I think, Northern California. It could be Southern California. I can't remember. I think it's actually Southern California now that I say out loud. The point here is that we have been historically taught to send patients with you know, intermediate chest pain, low risk, intermediate chest pain. We discharge them to get outpatient stress tests within, you know, 72 hours or some number, you know, some, some number of days. Does that really help? Do people actually do better when they do that? So this is out of Kaiser. And what happens is they created a non-randomized trial, but they created a trial where they compared the outcomes of patients with essentially non-STEMI, non-troponin positive chest pain who are being discharged. They compared the outcomes for those who were seen by providers who had a high referral rate a middle referral rate, and a low referral rate, the infamous tertiles. And then they studied them in their Kaiser database to see how many of them had a major adverse cardiovascular event within, I forget if it was 30 days or 90 days, some amount of time. And the point was that essentially the major adverse cardiovascular event rate was higher if you had people referred to outpatient stress at a higher rate. And that's not good. It's supposed to make it lower. You're supposed to go in there, figure out that people are at risk, and they're supposed to avoid having MIs and stuff. Now, in fairness, the only reason they were higher is they found some people that had some lesions that got revascularized. The incidence of recurrent MI, of recurrent CHF, anything like that was the same across the groups. But the bottom line is this highlights that you don't need to be sending all these patients to uh, stress within 72 hours. There's a lot of caveats here. It doesn't mean no patient should go to stress. It just means that the marginal difference between those low refers and high refers doesn't have any improved clinical outcomes. So I really like this paper. I love the methodology, despite the word tertile that's peppered all through it. The next abstract on this best of collection is intranasal TXA in atraumatic anterior epistaxis, a randomized clinical trial. This is from the Annals of Emergency Medicine. And this is sort of a moving target, no doubt, because I felt like the book was sort of closed on this. We did a meta-analysis looking at TXA for nosebleeds that said it didn't really work. There was that NOPAC trial, a big one that said it didn't really work. And these authors were kind of like, mm, pump the brakes. So this was a double-blind, randomized trial from a single emergency department in Iran, where basically they randomized patients with nosebleeds to either get phenylephrine and lidocaine on a little pledget up the nose or phenylephrine and lidocaine with a little TXA 
in the mix. And they looked at a couple of different outcomes and essentially found that the TXA worked. They said that it did have improved outcomes in terms of need for packing, right? right? Which is sort of the big one that we really care about. And not a trivial amount, right? It was like a number needed to treat of like eight or something like that. That's correct. The need for packing was 50%, so half of them in the TXA group versus 65% in the no TXA group. And then things like ED length of stay longer than two hours and rebleeding, all those things actually favored the TXA group. So now the door's open again. It yeah, was we're closed. Back we're back open again. I think there are some subtle differences between There's the There's a studies. nice discussion in the paper when you did the full segment that describes you know, what might account for some yeah, of these differences. Yeah, why was no pack different than some of the stuff in the meta-analysis, different than this? There were some outcome differences. You know, if you're really interested in the topic, just sort of listen to the three or four papers we've covered on this. And, you know, another thing we got a lot of feedback on was just my summary here was, what camp are you in? TX yay or TX nay? I'm in the nay to that summary campiness. Well, I don't camp, so. <laughs> well, that's for sure. All right, next abstract is testing for respiratory pathogens and antibiotic use in children. And this one's in JAMA Network Open. And this is part of a couple paper series that we covered in the past year. This is just one of them. And the basic idea is that now every ED, I think, has access to these sort of multiviral panel PCR, multiviral PCR panels. There you go, for snoppy nosed kids. And the theory is that if you viral swab everybody, you know, they come in with a fever, cough, whatever it is, and you find out that it's human metanumovirus, whatever that yeah, is. Yeah, you find that out in real time. In real time. Then you, you can, can stop. You can just be done and say, hey, mom, this is a virus. Don't need antibiotics. Let's move on. But is that true? Well, it turns out that at a couple randomized controlled trials have shown that that's not true now, that the indiscriminate use of these tests at best does nothing and at worst could actually increase the use of antibiotic. Now, in this particular study, it was no difference. There was no difference in antibiotic prescribing between those who got the test and those who didn't in a randomized manner, which suggests to me that, you know, the amount that are detected and result in you going, I'm not going to give antibiotics are counterbalanced by the ones that you think it's a virus, but then the panel's negative and you start to get a little nervous and go, well, maybe if there's no virus, maybe it is a bacterial thing. So you give them the antibiotics. In this case, that netted out to nothing, right? So it ends up just being a waste of resources. There was another trial that showed it actually paradoxically increased antibiotic use. So to me, this sort of pairing of papers is pretty good evidence that we shouldn't be doing indiscriminate viral testing for kids. And probably it should be reserved more for kids who you're really on the fence about whether you're going to need to do a workup, you know, give antibiotics to as opposed to the garden variety, snoppy nose, three for one in the emergency department family of, uh, you know, viremic kids. But you can't, you definitely can't ignore the practical problem of sometimes people are coming in looking for that viral test, particularly the COVID to send their kid back to school or That's something true. like that. So you may end up sending it in those cases, but I think this sort of buyer beware understanding of how you're going to interpret those results is a good message. Regardless. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great point. It really is. And yes, we're all stuck in this world of like, well, I, I'm not even here for the other viruses. I'm only here to get a COVID note or something like that. And you'll have to manage that in your own system. And in my system, what I prefer to do is actually do the swab and send them home. 
you make your clinical decision and send them home and then just inform them of the result of the COVID. But everybody will handle that their own way. The next best of abstract, immobilization of torus fractures of the wrist in children, the FORCE trial from Lancet. This one is pretty straightforward and can definitely be considered a practice changer. Basically, what they did here was they took little kids who had buccal fractures of their forearm and they randomized them to getting essentially nothing, which was kind of a bandage wrap or rigid immobilization, which usually came in the form of a removable splint. And they looked at a bunch of different outcomes, including satisfaction, pain, clinical outcomes, and found them to be exactly the same. So I think that if you are already doing this, if you see a buccal fracture and you're just saying, put a splint on, then you're probably right at the right place. If you want to go one step further and say you don't need that splint, that's going to be okay too. But if you're casting, you're too far to the one side. Or if you're sending them to another ED or a specialist or something that casted, that's a complete waste of time. I think most people at this point are probably going to put on a removable splint but use this paper to go, eh, if your kid doesn't tolerate it or they want to go, you know, in the they bath just keep and they removing take it. it off, they keep <laughs> removing it. You don't have to like, you know, use some kind of crazy adhesive mm-hmm. to keep it on. That's probably okay. All right. The next one is hollow viscous injury and abdominal seatbelt sign using CT. And this one's in JAMA surgery. And, you know, this is basically this whole seatbelt sign controversy that I swear we've been talking about for 25 years now. Historically. A bad seatbelt sign across a belly puts you at high risk for hollow viscous injury. The authors start out this paper by talking about, is that really true today because of three sort of features? The first one is that abdominal seatbelts today are not these like isolated lap belt signs because we have these three-point harness seatbelts, so they don't pretend the same way. Also, people are documenting abdominal seatbelt signs for conditions that really approximate abrasions. And it's really not the same as this, you know, big purple thing that you had on there. Yeah, it's a little scratchy, not a bruise. Yeah. And then in that context, the risk is clearly much lower. And then finally, our modern CT scans can detect all this stuff anyway, right? So does it really mean anything when you have an abdominal seatbelt sign? If the CT is negative, do you still have to admit these people because they might have a little tear in a piece of duodenum that'll present itself after two days or something like that? Bottom line, this is a multi-center prospective evaluation, not randomized. And they had 70 people who had both a hollow viscous injury that was proven by clinical follow-up and all that kind of stuff, or or OR, and had a seatbelt sign. And the question, the real question is, did CT miss any of those? And the answer for my read is no, it missed zero. There's one case where there's some controversy. The CT found all sorts of other stuff, but it was a little bit unclear if it identified specifically the hollow viscous thing, but it identified three other things that would have kept the patient in the hospital. So overall, this suggests that modern CT scanners in this context of abdominal seatbelt sign are very good at figuring this out. You probably don't need to be admitting these people to the hospital just for observation on the basis of that sign across the abdomen. Next abstract, MAC blade size on endotracheal intubation success, the MAC size ICU. It's got size in the title twice. It's about does size matter? It's from intensive care medicine. And this is a really, really compelling, interesting paper. What they did here was they just looked at intubations that had occurred in an ICU and 
sometimes the doc was using a Mac 3, sometimes they were using a Mac 4, and they just kind of looked back and said, which one was better? Which one, you know, did the success rate go up with the Mac 3? Was it higher with the Mac 4? There are a few things that will get people more agitated, emergency physicians more agitated than the which size of the blade you should use, a yeah, 3 or a 4. I can four. say I very recently had a case where, you know, I was teaching a resident and, you know, I had asked if you're going to use Mac 3 or 4 and the deadpan response was, are you trying to kill the patient? No. I, are you joking? <laughs> like they didn't know that using a Mac 3 was even a feasible option. They, they think that's for like a three-year-old. Oh, because you're right. People are so passionate yeah. about it. And sometimes depending on which attendings you work with or whatever. So 2,000 ICU patients here. And this is the largest study by far on the topic. And they found that the Mac 3 had higher first pass success rate than the Mac 4. Again. Not a trial. There were some baseline differences between the groups. I'm definitely not saying we should all switch immediately to a Mac 3. I'm just saying if you're one of those like passion, passion players about it, get over it. They both work pretty well. There's probably going to be subtle differences patient to patient, but it's worth learning how to use the two of them. This next trial, and if I had a best of the year, this might win it. I just love this, this next abstract, and it's skin adhesive versus skin adhesive with underlying steri strips for facial injuries. And it's in pediatric emergency care. And it's actually a relatively small randomized trial. I think it was like 120 kids with simple facial lacerations who are randomized to Dermabond versus some underlying steri strips and then pouring Dermabond over the top of it. And the outcomes were same, 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 same. And so why is it my favorite? Well, I have wholesale adopted this practice with kids and adults, and it is it just is great. You get these people with wounds that won't approximate very well without like a fair amount of like pushing with your fingers. It's really hard to put Dermabond on that when you're squeezing these wounds together. You end up gluing your fingers to their face, and then you know you try to pry your fingers loose and you tear the wound back open. And now you've created a whole mess out of this of a relatively small wound. This paper says, don't do that. Put some steri strips to approximate the wound edges. Get your fingers out from the steri strips. Make sure it looks real nice. And then put the dermabond over the top of that. And it won't fall apart. The question is a little bit reversed here from what they actually found. But my question is, does it fall off? Does that whole steri strip dermabond amalgam fall off? And they found no evidence of that. So I have been doing this and it's great. It's really nice technique. So I highly encourage people to give it a whirl. There's no evidence that it's, you know, inferior to trying to approximate the wound edges with your fingers. So go for it. Try this Steri Strip Polystermabond thing. Yeah, I've done it a couple of times now too and been very, very happy. It's kind yeah. of like having a like a virtual medical student around. Yeah. You know, instead of like having someone like work really hard yeah. and sweat to approximate those edges. Slap on a couple of steri strips and then use your dermabond. Yeah. Simple, clean, the one thing I take found, home message. The one thing I found that's been helpful is I, I actually extend the dermabond to the edges of the steri strip too to hold them down. But that's, you know, but this is a good study. I love it. Thank you, Dr. Munns et al. My last best of abstract of 2022 is higher sensitivity with the lever test for diagnosis of ACL rupture. And this is by the famous archive orthopedic trauma surgery <laughs> journal, yes. which we don't cover obviously on this program a lot, but this is a really cool Well, paper. usually we go with the annals of orthopedic trauma, trauma surgery, surgery, not the archives. There's a bitter feud 
between yeah, the this two. Is a, this is the East Coast West this Coast is, rap this situation. Is this is bad school. This is intense. In fact, putting ourselves in the middle of it puts us in jeopardy, and it might be putting you guys in jeopardy too. So I'm sorry for that. So the lever test has been proposed as another way to diagnose an, a potential ACL rupture when you're evaluating a patient in the emergency department. Basically, you make a fulcrum out of your fist, sort of put it just distal to the knee, and then push down on the thigh to see if the foot lifts off the bed, indicating an intact lever, intact lever mechanism. And what they did here essentially was they took a bunch of people with suspected ACL ruptures and did all the standard tests, the ACL, the, the Lachman, the, the, drawer. Know, the, the drawer, and the lever test, and then just said which one had the best test characteristics. And the lever did by far in terms of both sensitivity and specificity. If you want the numbers, you can listen to the full program. But this just adding to the body of evidence that this probably is the best test. You can't do it on everybody. Yeah. But I think that one of the messages that I have not seen in another paper on this topic was they actually talk about the ability to do the test. Mm -hmm. And they said that they at least were able to get some kind of meaningful result out of the lever on everybody. And that was not true for the other test. The That's patient was just in too much pain too to big. even get the test done or just technically too difficult. Yeah. So at least they could do this one on yeah. everybody. If you don't know it, watch a video. It takes two seconds. Learn it. Go use it. This one is a good practice changer to end my section. All right. And the last one for me is CT characteristics and sensitivity for pyogenic spinal infections. And this is in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And, you know, I love this one. The purpose of the study was twofold. It was one to describe sort of the landscape of pyogenic infections, how many of each type there are. What's the chance of having multiple infections at the same time? And second, and probably the piece of it that really attracted me to this paper, was to estimate the sensitivity of modern CT scans for detecting these pyogenic spinal infections, and in particular, spinal epidural abscess, which is the culprit lesion in most cases of progressive paralysis. It was actually a prospective data collection, although this is a retrospective analysis of that prospective data. It wasn't a chart review, if you will. For the first part of the study, the key take-home point is that when there's one infection, there are many. So, you know, there were a total of some 90 patients that had pyogenic spinal infection. 70% of them had a spinal epidural abscess. And of those, 80% of them had another infection, often in another spinal area. Not just like T12 and T11, but T12 and C7, things like that. So skip lesions throughout the spinal cord. So a really important take-home point that if you CT a, a back and you see a paravertebral abscess, right, there's a good chance that there's another lesion somewhere in that spinal column and that may require an MRI of the whole damn thing. The other piece of it was just asking what's the CT sensitivity in particular for spinal epidural abscess. And it's terrible. It's terrible. CT does okay for some of these abscesses like the paravertebral abscess osteomyelitis CT isn't that bad, but of the people that had spinal epidural abscess, only 20% of those were detected by the CT scan. So if you're suspicious, you got to get the MRI. And then the real problem is you probably have to get an MRI of the whole spinal cord, which can take a long time, but that's just the reality. <laughs> wow. That was a lightning 20 paper review. Yeah, we, we did our, I mean, Look, there's extended reviews for you in each of the different months, the links in the show notes, all that kind of business. 
Yeah. But I think we, we really, wanted to highlight. Yeah, we wanted to share our favorites from mm-hmm. the year. I think we wanted to give, you know, the existing listeners and maybe new listeners out there some insight into the way we think, the way we think about research, how we incorporate it into our practice, the way we think about picking papers, and maybe even give some researchers a, a goal to strive for. Make it on the top 20. Put that on your CV, the top 20 EMA of 2023. Yeah, I'm sure that's a, there's a bunch of researchers out there going, if only I can do this, would be the feather in the cap of my well, promotion. They didn't cover my paper. Yeah, I bet I could have got an early promotion to associate if they just <laughs> covered it. It's possible. Uh, yeah, I don't as we both sit on a variety of promotions committees, yeah, I don't know about that. But I hope that it was informative. I hope that it highlighted some of the cases. And if you're a regular listener, I hope it just sort of jostled your memory. You're like, oh yeah, that, that's right. I do remember that. That's a, Then it becomes part of this spaced repetition thing that oh. you know Mel often talks about. So um, look you know, at this fancy educator yeah, look over at me, here, huh? huh? Spatial repetitions. Picks a band pen and is picks a band shoes. Yeah. yeah, look at that. They glow. All right. Well, this has been fun. Like I said, I hope it was informative. But if it wasn't, I hope that at least you enjoyed it. And you stay classy. Of course. Stay classy. <laughs>